Welcome to the AAK podcast brought to you by All About Kids, the leading provider of children's therapeutic and educational services in New York. This podcast will dive deep into discussions on children's developmental needs and the stories of parents and other adults who have dealt with developmental disorders. Each conversation on this show is an extension of our mission to create a world where all children have access to intervention, allowing them to live a full and rich life without restriction, where parents have access to the information and training they need to support their child's therapy and special education needs, and where disabilities, therapy, and special education can be openly discussed without stigma. This time, I sit down with Abby Landy. Abby is a speech-language pathologist and the owner of Upward Speech Therapy, LLC, which provides engaging and innovative speech and language therapy services in Indianapolis, Indiana, and the surrounding area. Today, Abby and I get into what drew her to speech therapy, useful digital resources for SLPs, late talkers, play-based strategies for therapy, and more. Without further ado, please enjoy this deep dive with Abby Landy. Abby Landy, thank you for joining me on the All About Kids podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Of course. So so you've been practicing therapy for over seven years now. Mm-hmm. And you've been in preschools, elementary schools, and you now have your own private practice. So I, I wanted to ask you, what drew you to speech therapy initially? What What got you into it? Yeah, so... I come from a long line of educators. So my mom was a kindergarten teacher. My grandmother was a first grade teacher. Another grandmother was a principal of a preschool. So I kind of grew up knowing I wanted to work with kids just from being surrounded by it. Um, And I would shadow my mom in her kindergarten class frequently. And I loved it, but I knew that multiple kids for me was not the thing. It was just Mm. too many little kids for one person. Um, so I remember I was in high school and one day my mom took me over to the speech therapist at our elementary school and I just shadowed for the day and I loved it. I just like was so drawn to having that individualized time with one kid or like a small group, um, and still seeing the impact on kids. So going into college, I kind of knew from there that I wanted to go that route. Um, and it was perfect. It was, I loved all the classes in undergrad and continued into grad school. And it just, it always clicked with me ever since then. Yeah. I, I have so much respect for all educators in general, but the ones who do it on a a large classroom style format, especially, especially with younger kids. I mean, I, I don't know if there's a formula to it, I, it it seems so (laughs) overwhelming to have a classroom full of 30 people and be able to impact each one of them directly and personally based on their needs. So I can definitely see Mm -hmm. the draw to working with kids one-on-one to have a deeper impact individually to set them up for more success when they're in the classroom. Yeah, for sure. I would say during grad school, one of my like practicum placements, I was in a preschool setting and half the week I pushed into these two classes. So it was like 30 preschoolers and me. Yeah. (laughs) I loved it. But I was like, I appreciate these teachers so much because the amount of work that goes into it, it's just, it's a lot. 
So, yeah. Yeah, a classroom full of 30 preschoolers, one wrong move and they can take over the the whole building. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so you've um you've been in the therapy industry for a while obviously and and you've seen the way that therapy is practiced changed throughout the pandemic. And I wanted to ask you, you know, with, with things becoming more digital and therapists being forced to go into a digital state during the pandemic, for sure, if they weren't already teaching digitally and interacting digitally before the pandemic, what are some of the digital trends that you've seen become adopted the most throughout the the pandemic, whether it's, you know, resources or, or style of teachings? Is there anything that sticks out to you in particular? Yeah, I mean, I was kind of in that boat, you know, I mm-hmm. before the pandemic, I had, I don't think I ever had done one teletherapy session. Um, and when everything happened, I knew that that was going to need to be something that I needed to do if I wanted to continue my path of career through the pandemic. So, you know, I've found a huge trend of just like following social media. That's one thing. And especially with starting my private practice during the whole pandemic, you know, I've found it being very helpful, not only for therapists, but also also for parents, Mm -hmm. um, just finding those accounts that provide resources, free resources, or just like tips and ideas of things that you could do as a therapist, but also parents at home with their kids. Um, I've found like social media to be a blessing and very, very helpful. Um, but also I've just, I started learning about all different resources out there, whether it be like subscription websites where you can sign up to receive, you know, certain resources to help you within your teletherapy sessions, or even just like subscriptions where they help you get organized and keep like a caseload online and all your documentation online. So I feel like during the pandemic, there's been so much more and more that's come out. And before there might've been a lot out. I just didn't know. Cause I yeah. wasn't doing a lot of teletherapy at all before. Um, but I do feel like therapy as a whole on social media has grown immensely since the pandemic started. Yeah. Can, can you, can you talk a little bit about launching your business during the pandemic and, and also creating content alongside it? Because therapy and speech therapy in particular seems like such an open space on social media and Instagram and YouTube because every parent that I talk to for my job working at All About Kids, they either have a kid in speech therapy or their friend has a kid in speech therapy or they have multiple kids in speech therapy. But in terms of modern day, you know, like reels or YouTube podcasts, TikToks, Mm -hmm. whatever. There's not a ton of content out there. There are some great creators that do put out some knowledgeable pieces of, of content in that area. Could could you talk about the, the launch of your business and also creating content alongside that? Because I'm sure there are a lot of therapists that would find that super helpful, even if they're not planning on launching their Mm -hmm. own practice, just to start some sort of channel or something like that. Yeah. So I, right before the pandemic, I was working at a children's hospital here in Indiana and I was pregnant and I had my first child in December of 2019. So right before everything started. Mm. Um, and while I was on my maternity leave and I started realizing kind of maybe what was about to happen, I already was hesitant of, 
of going back to the hospital. And I knew one day I wanted to have my own private practice. I never mm-hmm. thought I would do it this early in my career. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was time to go back to work and the pandemic had just started. Like it was like, I was going back a week after the whole national shutdown started. So mm. I put in I, my notice and just, just decided not to go back. So I started my practice that March of 2020 and it was really slow. That whole first year, it was all telehealth, um, teletherapy and just kind of slowly trying to figure out the world of private practice, a lot of research, a lot of going on social media, trying to figure out, you know, what am I doing? How do I start this practice? Not only as a new person starting a practice, but also via teletherapy Mm. Um, and in this crazy new world. So, you know, that first year was just a big learning experience. The whole time I wished that I had minored in business because, you know, as a speech therapist, you never really get that kind of education. You don't really realize what all goes into having your own practice Mm. other than the actual therapy part. Um, So I did a lot of like self-education and courses and just trying to figure out and navigate, you know, how to create a website, how to best document, how to best communicate with families so that it's HIPAA compliant. Um, and that's kind of when I started tapping into using social media. So I quickly learned that it was not only helpful for me, but the families that I was treating loved all the content that I started putting out. Mm, Um, and that's kind of what's been driving me. You know, at first it was just kind of fun. Like I would do a couple reels here, there, and a couple posts of, you know, what sounds should my child have at what age? Um, but then the feedback I got was always from my families. So I honestly started putting more out just to give that information to my families and then started getting so much more feedback from other speech therapists saying, I love this post. I shared this with one of my families. Thank you for posting this. So I wish that I had more time dedicated to doing, you know, social media posts because I've found it very helpful for others and helpful for myself because it requires me to go on and do research on whatever topic I'm Mm. going to be posting about. Um, But, you know, certain weeks I can get like five posts out there and then I have like a two week hibernation where I have no posts and my families will say like, where's our next post? Like, can you do something on this topic? So, (laughs) you know, I found it extremely helpful um, for those families for sure. Just wanting more information um, and, I've created kind of a fun community with other speech therapists at the same time, which is nice. Um, I've found like kind of friends on Instagram, so to say, of other speech therapists that comment back and forth and give ideas with one another. And it's been neat because we're kind of stuck at home a lot during these past few years. So it's kind of given a new sense of community, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of the reason why we started the podcast because at All About Kids, we we had a lot of live webinars and in-person conferences, but there's not really a way to consume that content outside of the chat room if you're there or if you miss the conference and you don't really get to see it. And we mm-hmm. started putting out podcasts and, you know, just chopping up these 30-second sound bites, 30 second reels, and hundreds of people will view a lot of those, sometimes thousands, depending on the topic. And so it's like this, this cool way to 
interact with parents, teachers, and then also other therapists hit us up sometimes too and just be like, hey, you know, how do you subtitle a reel? Like, what do you use? Because mm-hmm. it's taking me so damn long. Like, so just stuff like that. <laughs> like, it, like, it's cool. Uh, it's cool to see s- speech therapy entering the realm of, you know, the TikTokable content. Yeah. Like, there's definitely, there's definitely a lot of mind-numbing content on there, and I'm, I'm susceptible mm-hmm. to that as well. But it's, it's also <laughs> an outlet for people to be swiping through and scrolling through and they're like, Oh, I saw this thing on late talking. Like I had no idea. I was just scrolling through cat videos. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say I'm trying really hard. I feel like I dedicate too much time to creating content. And my husband jokes all the time. He's like, you don't have to think too hard about it. Just like do a quick little reel post. I'm like, I have to like think a lot about what I'm posting. And I, I definitely need to learn how to shorten it for sure but it's fun to make and helpful yeah. for others so yeah I, I i wanted to get into late talking a little bit but while we're on the topic of social media is mm-hmm. there any is there any topic you've been researching recently in the past few weeks or month that you've really been diving into so something you've learned that surprised you recently yeah so i feel maybe like last month the cdc changed their development developmental milestones um so it's been like the big talk of the town in the speech therapy world um so i had actually i'd been creating a document that had like all these different posts that i was planning on posting that said you know how many words should my kid have at this age what sounds should my kid have at this age it was all different posts and then the cdc came and like changed their milestones completely <laughs> So, um, recently I went back to that cause I hadn't posted it yet and I was updating it with the new CDC milestones, but I've just been doing a lot of research on how to communicate to families, you know, my personal opinion as a speech therapist versus the new milestones that have been released. Um, and I know there's like so much debate and talk on the town about that, but that's been like a hot topic. I feel like lately yeah. in the speech therapy world of, um, trying to explain to parents and families, you know where their child should be according to those milestones. But yeah, um, what, what's the what's the controversy about it right now? Is it did, did people not agree with the milestones or having problems with the change or something like that? Yeah, so like they changed it where, like, for example, I think it used to be like an 18 month old, the average range of like words an 18 month old should have is like 50. And they changed it to like 10. So now when a kid comes through the door, if they're using 10 words as an 18 month old, that's supposed to be like the average range. Whereas as a speech therapist, we've just been so used to thinking that they should have a little bit more than that. So it's kind of just been controversial in that aspect. But um, I know that there's talk about them changing it back again. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but um it's just all about like communicating to families, you know, what I personally as a speech therapist and what I learned in grad school versus what's out right now. And I know they're in the works of possibly changing things or whatnot, but yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it seems like a small change, but you know, I'm, I'm going to be 29 this year. I don't have kids, but a lot of my friends are starting to think about having kids or already have a kid that's super young. And mm-hmm. one of the, hot topics is 
when is my child supposed to be talking? You know, they're like 14 months old. They are only saying this. And then another one of my friends will say, my kid's doing this. So I'm, Mm -hmm. you know, out talking your kid. It comes like almost (laughs) like this fun competition of comparing your kids to other kids. And then you hear things and then the milestones change. And even if Mm -hmm. it's a few words in your mind, you know, if your kid was saying, uh, you know, eight words or 10 words, and then the milestone gets changed to 15 or it's, it's vice versa, then yeah. that can, a it's lot confusing. of times it messes with the confidence that the parents have in their kids. Cause they just thought that they were fine. And now there's this questioning of, do I, should I put my kid in therapy or do I need to take action? Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's like a whole thing with working with late talkers is, you know, helping parents understand that kids are, they can be on different levels and that's okay. Kids Mm. develop in such different timelines. And so it makes it kind of challenging sometimes to know, you know, do they need therapy? Should we evaluate? But that's like a big thing that I always talk about is that wait and see approach that some pediatricians might say is if a parent has like a gut feeling that they're, they're just not sure if their child needs speech therapy or, if it would be helpful, I just always tell families, if you have that feeling, there's no harm in doing an evaluation. Yeah. You know, if you wait and see, and then later realize, yes, we do need it. Then you wasted, you know, five, six months of time where they could have been getting therapy. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah. I always tell families just wait on that gut feeling. Oh, yeah. So th- there may be a lot of parents listening to this podcast who have concerns about their children being late talkers or or falling into that category. Could you define exactly what a late talker is? Because it it seems obvious, but like you said, the milestones are changing and and definitions. Um, So what is a late talker and what would a kid who, what would a kid's patterns of talking be like that falls into the late talking category? Yeah. So A late talker is typically like between 18 and 30 months, give or take. Um, And like, for example, if you have an 18 month old who's not talking yet or only saying like one or two words, then that would start being, you know, somewhat possibly a late talker. Mm -hmm. Um, Usually with late talkers, you know, they're understanding things so they can understand directions that you're giving them. They can follow along with what you're saying. Usually they might have typical play skills. You know, you don't have any concerns with those social skills or play skills. And the only area of concern is, you know, they're just not expressing themselves. Um, One thing I always explain to families, because a lot of families come in and they say, we have no words, but the child comes in and they're signing or they're, you know, making like environmental sounds. So like, uh uh-oh, or boom, 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 or choo-choo. Yeah. All those little things actually do count as words. So a big part is like educating families to understand what it means when they say my child's not talking, because even though it's not what we think is talking, you know, what we think is using words, if yeah. they are signing or doing any of those things that kind of counts as using words. Um, but typically like to give like an average range at like one kids should have about like two to six words by like 18 months, about 50 words. And then two, you'll start seeing like the 200 words and putting two words together. Um, 
that's just like kind of like an average range of where kids should be. But again, like all kids just develop at such different rates. And so it's hard to like pinpoint exactly the number of words kids kids should be using. Yeah. So there there is a value for a kid to be signing, like you said, or they're talking, but in gibberish, they think they're communicating something. If you could hear that kid's thoughts, they'd probably be saying, mom, turn on the TV, but they're just saying, (laughs) you know, like it's just, it sounds almost like words, but it's not quite there yet. That isn't zero. That isn't zero. That's a meaningful thing. Yeah. And all that counts, like however the child is communicating. And even if a child is like, crying in a moment where they're expressing frustration that's them communicating Mm. um because that's another thing is like a kid might come in and the only thing they do is just like cry or whine and point and whine that's their form of communication um now we want them to start using words and using more um forms of expressive communication but looking like more into how these children are communicating with us and then going from there is a big part with Mm. working with late talkers. How much does personality come into play with late talkers? Because I've heard people say or parents will maybe their kid isn't talking at a certain point. They're not meeting the check marks, but they'll say something like, oh, our, our kid's just more quiet or, or calm. They're, they're more passive. Do you see a large spectrum of a kid being more on the extroverted side versus the introverted side in terms of the number of words they use? Or does personality not come into play at that, that early of an age? I kind of see it all. I, I do feel like a lot of families when they come in, like words that I'll hear, where again, I, there's a lot of education in place is like my child's being lazy or stubborn, or they're an introvert and really shy. So they're not using words. And all of those things, you know, they do play into part of the child's personality, but at the end of the day, kids want to communicate with us. They want to tell us their thoughts, their ideas. And if they're not doing that, then we have to figure out like, what is it that's impacting their ability to do so? So Mm -hmm. like when a parent comes in and says, my kid's just lazy and doesn't want to talk, you know, I do a lot of education on your child's too. They want to communicate. They want to be able to be in this world with us and tell us, their thoughts and tell us what they need in that moment. So laziness just might, it might look like that, but really it's, this is hard for them. And so they might just totally check out because it's just too hard. Um, same, same with like stubbornness. A lot of kids will come in and the families are like, they're just stubborn. They don't want to talk. And so it's a lot of just trying to help them understand they want to talk. It's just hard. Mm. Um, but yeah, I feel like kids, that come in as late talkers have all different personalities. You know, they might be running around the room full of energy and just not verbally expressing themselves, or they might be that introvert who's just shy and having a harder time um, expressing their thoughts and ideas. Okay. So personality may have an effect, but it's not an end all be all. Yeah. I've kind of seen it all, like all of it. Yeah. But yeah. So I was digging through some of the speech therapy forums on Reddit just to see what some of the most common questions were that the parents had or teachers. And mm-hmm. one of the thing that one of the things that came up that certainly applies to us because 
we have a lot of uh, bilingual therapists and also kids that are growing up in households with parents who speak Spanish or, or Korean or another language. Is there a shift in the time frame that you expect a kid to be talking if they're learning two languages, like if a parent's talking to their kid in English and Spanish, or does the time frame stay the same? Usually I do see a little bit of a different time frame. Um, and I always tell families continue to speak both languages because research shows that it's good to do so and it doesn't cause delay. It's more kids are taking in the information for a little bit longer period and then mm. they'll start expressing themselves. So I never really call it a delay because of having two languages. It's more of there's a lot more information that yeah. they need to take in. Um, but yeah, there's not really a certain time frame that I see, but usually when I work with kids who are bilingual or in a bilingual family, you'll see a little bit longer time of processing information before starting to verbally express themselves for sure. Yeah. I was going to say, I've seen, I've seen some things saying that there may be a delay if you're in a bilingual household, but it's not something to worry about unless it gets past a certain point. Yeah, it wouldn't necessarily be like a true like language delay unless they end up being like a late talker who just needs more support. But you always look at if that child's showing difficulties in both languages, you know, mm -hmm. if a child came in, let's say speaking Spanish and just hasn't yet started speaking English, I wouldn't call that late talking or delay because they're using communication in one of their languages. But if you see both languages being impacted, then that's when you'd have a cause for concern. Yeah, it's like a parent comes in and says, my my kid's only fluent in four languages so far. He hasn't said a word in English yet. I'm I'm very worried. Um <laughs> but but yeah, um you mentioned that the you mentioned the wait and see approach before. And mm -hmm. could you talk about the wait and see approach? Because even though a lot of parents may not call it that people can fall into it. And I understand sure. why you may fall into it. Can you, can you talk about that approach and what your thoughts yeah. are on it? Yeah. So when I hear like the wait and see, it's, you know, a parent might have a concern that their kid's not talking yet. And so they might go to a pediatrician or speak with friends or, you know, a therapist and they say, let's give it another six months. We'll wait and see what your child's doing in six months. And then at that point, if you still have concerns, then we can do a full evaluation and see if therapy is warranted, mm. um, which, you know, it kind of depends on the scenario. If the kid comes and they're like 10 months old or 12 months old with no other things going on, you know, they're comprehending, they're showing typical play skills, then it might be appropriate to say, let's wait mm. because they're still pretty young. But if there's other factors involved, like um, I had a patient that had a sibling who also had speech and language delays and the parent came to me. I think the child was like 15 months or 18 months and just had this gut feeling that their child, the, the second child wasn't using any words yet. Instead of taking a wait and see approach, you know, what I always say is if there's a gut feeling at all, there's no harm in doing that first evaluation. And if mm. after that evaluation, there's no concerns yet, then we can say, okay, in six months from now, if you're seeing things still and you have that concern, come back and we can reevaluate. But I always take the approach. I'd rather get the child in, 
do an evaluation, make sure everything's going well, provide the parents with tips, if not anything else, of things that they can do at home to support communication, and then kind of see what happens from there. But if you wait those, you know, however long, and the child really did need therapy, then you're missing that really good chunk of time where you could have been providing therapy and suggestions and recommendations for the family. So I always say, don't wait and see. If you have this feeling, just come in and, you know, we can figure out the next step. Yeah. So so definitely get the evaluation sooner than later if you have a gut feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, yep. it's, uh, it's crazy to think about the the window of time that you have when you're one, two, three years old, Mm -hmm. how much of a little slice of time makes a difference in your larger window of development. And if you, you don't remember being that young and going through that, obviously, because someone else is Mm -hmm. making your decisions for you. Someone else is taking care of you. But then once I started working in speech therapy, marketing for all about kids and, and reading content and producing content, one one of the things that stood out to me the most is if waiting two or three months could make a huge difference, sometimes weeks, depending on what the problem is to get help for your child, as opposed to getting help right away. And you really don't mm-hmm. think about that as an adult, because you know if I work out one month from now, or I start working out today, you know, in the grand scheme of 20 years from now, that's not going to make a ton of difference that I started working out one month before. But yeah, you know, from (laughs) a a non therapist perspective, as as I'm looking on from the outside, it it does seem like the timeframe is very tight. And Mm -hmm. very, uh, it serves parents to be proactive in that small Mm -hmm. timeframe. Yeah. And I find a lot of working with this age range is a ton of just parent education. You know, sometimes a kid comes in and I recognize one little thing that parents can change at home. And just that one little change makes the world of a difference. And so if I can help parents recognize that little change earlier, then it helps their child be able to communicate earlier, decreasing frustrations and, you know, providing more of that interactive engagement between the parent and the child too. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes it's as simple as that. Not always, but is, is there an example like that? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So no, yeah. A good example would be like, like if a parent is just anticipating their child's wants and needs. So like the child's really good at gesturing, like if they want those chips up on the counter and they're just pointing mm-hmm. and the parent just brings them the chips, just helping parents recognize wait and pause and model for your kid to say, you know, chips or want or more and giving them that opportunity to just say that parents don't realize how often sometimes that they, you can read your child without them having to say anything because Mm. you're with them 24 seven, you know, their patterns and what they're gesturing. So just that little cue of just waiting and seeing if your child can then express themselves verbally it just goes a long way. Mm. And sometimes parents come back and they're like, just that little thing, that little change now he Mm. or she is starting to use more words. So being able to help them recognize those things to start right away um, is always great. What would you say to a parent who is thinking about getting their child evaluated, but then they see the statistics and they go, well, 
statistics show that my child is going to grow out of it anyway. So why not wait and just see what happens? What would you say to a parent who is taking that approach? Um, I think I'd say a couple things. I'd say, you know, this time frame in the child's life is so um, important and helping them be able to learn how to communicate right now is going to help them in the long run. Um, there's also some statistics out there that shows that late talkers, even if they start showing improvement and they start talking, mm-hmm. might end up later. I think it's like 20 to 30% of children who are late talkers might have other, you know, developmental issues or like literacy, um, difficulties later. And so the earlier that kids can get into therapy to start providing them, um, support, the better. Mm. Um, and also a big one is just helping to decrease frustrations for the child at home. You know, everybody wants to talk and express what they need and what they want. So to help those children learn how to do that sooner so that decreases any type of frustration or, you know, any relationship impact between the parent and the child. If the child's wanting to express something and the parent can't figure out what it is, that's going to impact that relationship in that Mm. moment. So bringing them in sooner to help them be able to figure out how to communicate will help with that as well. Yeah. So it's beyond just the skill set of talking. You you can actually improve mm-hmm. your relationship with your kid if you're proactively seeking to help them communicate and that may be getting them evaluated or, or putting them in therapy. Mm-hmm, for sure. And just those little moments, like I'll have parents just message me saying, you know, thank you so much. My child just said, I love you for the first time. And I <laughs> never realized how important that impact would be on my life. And like little things like that, that parents might not realize by coming in and getting evaluated and starting therapy might make those moments just a little bit sweeter. Mm. We talked a little bit offline about your play-based therapy style and and you enjoy a very play-based approach. What are some of your play-based strategies for late talkers that you like to use some of your favorite activities or ways that you set up the the therapy session could be digital or in person. Yeah. So a big thing that I always do is just follow the child's lead. Um, I've found that the sessions just go a lot more smoothly. Um, you know, if you are trying to push things on a child, especially on this zero to three age range, Um, or if you are trying to kind of run the show, kids might not be into it and then they lose that interaction and then you lose anything you're trying to do in that session. So, you know, a big thing is when a child comes in, I have things out. I have an idea. I have a whole plan in mind of what's going to happen. But if that child, let's say I have all these toys sitting out and they just like start looking at my carpet in my room, I start Mm. incorporating you know, what's on the carpet? Is there like an animal on it that we can incorporate into the um, play interaction and just following kind of what they're doing and slowly incorporating new ideas into their idea? Um, I found that to be a very helpful strategy and the session just ends up going a lot more smoothly. Um, Yeah, Yeah, I would would imagine. It's so so much of traditional education in the classroom is not go with the flow approach. If you're not tunnel visioned Mm -hmm. on this textbook reading or the 
the PowerPoint that you've seen for the 18th time this <laughs> week, you are punished or it's looked down upon <laughs> to lose attention for, you know, three seconds, even yeah. though it's some of the most boring things you've ever seen. And you're mm-hmm. not really encouraged to follow something that you can have a passion for and and that can be very in the moment. So it sounds like mm-hmm. you allow the, like you don't make the kid feel bad or you don't make them feel like they're doing something wrong by becoming fascinated by something in the middle of sure. another topic. You, you go with that. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you'll always find like if a child shows interest in whatever it is they're showing interest with, if you then join them in their interest, then they will more likely interact with you because then they see, oh, she likes what I'm doing. This is nice. I like this engagement, this interaction. And then it starts building upon it from there. And then you might find as the session goes on, you might find that you can start incorporating your own ideas. And now they have this relationship with you and they feel comfortable engaging with you and seeing what you have planned. So I always just find it it goes better that way. Yeah. Once your child learns to speak, then you can teach them how to subtitle reels and TikToks. And then you have a, a personal assistant that you're both excited about. <laughs> um, so, so as we, as we end off to kind of bring things full circle back to, to social media a little bit, th- this would apply to parents and kids in general. A lot of parents use screen time in some way to keep their kids occupied, whether it's, you know, it's an iPad or a TV, an iPhone. And there's a lot of different fields of theory out there about how much screen time is good, what you should be doing. And parents are definitely concerned, you know, when Mark Zuckerberg is talking about how we're all going to be in the metaverse in 10 years and like nothing is going to be in person anymore. Even, Mm -hmm. even people who aren't parents are, you know, freaking out for themselves. Like what is the planet going to be like? Where, what will interactions be like? Is there a philosophy that you follow with parents? Like what do you tell parents in terms of your own personal philosophy for general screen time? even if it's outside mm-hmm. of therapy sessions or games, just, just how much time kids should be spending on it, what sort of activities are better than other things? What, what are some of those conversations that you have with parents? Yeah, I like this question because so before I became a parent, you know, I don't know what I would have necessarily said, probably not what I will say today. But before becoming a parent, I probably would have said, you know, try and limit it as much as you can. It's okay if you can't completely because we all need those moments to, you know, allow our child to have their moment so that you have a break. Um, Now, after having so I have a two, almost two and a half year old daughter, um, I have definitely gone through that path of I just let her watch whatever she is wanting to watch in that moment so that I can have a break. And at first, you know, I'm like, I'm a speech therapist. I should feel like horrible for doing this. But there's so many great things that I've actually learned being a parent with screen time. Um, And what I tell families is allowing children to have screen time isn't necessarily just like plopping them on the couch, putting a movie on and, and leaving. You know, a good thing, a really nice part about screen time is being with your child and talking about what's happening on the screen. You know, even if it's just like, a Disney movie like Moana Mm. or, you know, 
Encanto, the new one, you know, it's not necessarily an educational show, but by sitting with them and talking about things and pausing and answering questions and, you know, you're still providing that language and new vocabulary and um, children are still learning through it versus just letting them just watch it on their own. Now we all need those days and I'm definitely guilty of it yeah. where I just put on Moana and I go and cook dinner Yeah, and it's just, go. it's needed for everybody. But being with your child while having that screen time provides so much for them. And I'm, I'm all about it. I, you know, when families come in and they say like, we never watch anything, we make it a very big part not to have any screen. If that's what the family wants to do, I think that it's perfect. But I always tell families it's okay. It's not going to harm them. There's ways to go about using screen time so that it's still a language building opportunity. And even if it's a child who's a late talker and learning how to say on and off or, mm. you know, stop and go, you know, you can use that as a activity at some point to work on those words and that vocabulary. Um, so I don't necessarily give families, you know, a set amount of time that I think is appropriate because everyone's lives are so different. And yeah. some families might need those moments to just put the screen on for a second to give everybody a little break. Yeah. And I think that's okay. I think that it, it gives everyone a peace of mind. And, you know, I probably as a kid was plopped in front of the TV for who knows how long and I'm doing okay. So I, yeah. I tell families not to stress too hard on it. And just to, to look at what kind of content you're providing your child and, um, you know, educational content is great or other content. If you're sitting with them and talking through it, it's great opportunities of language building and enrichment. So yeah, I, all about it. I, I like that. So <laughs> adding an extra layer of interaction as a parent to ask your kid what's going on or you pause it and your kid mm -hmm. makes a comment and then you talk with them about it for a second and then you can restart it. Yeah. And then it brings a lot of like pretend play in because if you find a show that your child loves and then you talk through it and then you can create a type of play-based activity of, you know, pretend play and acting out the characters, you know, it, it can provide so many more opportunities of language building other than yeah. just that moment of watching the show together. Yeah. I, I kind of got caught into that hard line of I'm going to not watch anything I'm going to read. And that was a few years ago. I just said, you know, I'm not, I'm done with Netflix. I'm done with TV. <laughs> this is why this is the source of all my problems. It's because I'm watching things <laughs> and I'm not reading enough. And then I went probably like a month, probably six weeks and was reading. And I, the reason I stopped watching was because I was afraid that quote unquote garbage content was rotting my brain pretty much. And then I realized how much garbage content there is out there for reading too. Like it's, <laughs> it's all, it's all about the, the source and the content itself rather than mm -hmm. the medium, because you can, you can rot your brain watching something or you can rot your brain reading something or listening to something. And I felt like mm -hmm. I was robbing myself of all these amazing movies and documentaries and, and TV shows. And so I kind of just, I was like this, you know, this makes no sense. I'm just going <laughs> to gravitate towards exciting content, whatever the medium is rather than yeah. give myself these hard lines. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I, I saw, I solved, uh, 
I, I solved everything. I'm, I'm just going to, you know, stop <laughs> watching go. The Good Place, uh, which is a great <laughs> yeah, show, by I, the way. <laughs> I should decrease my amount of time that I, I watch TV. But at the end of the day, I just always find myself on the couch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you need it. You need it. Um, yeah. Need doses of it. So thank and you. And if we need it, then our kids probably need it. So Ab- absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much, Abby, for hopping on the podcast. Before you go, can you tell people where mm-hmm. they can follow you and keep up with you, content, resources, things like that? And this will all be linked yeah. in the, the episode description. Awesome. Yeah. So I, you can find me on Instagram. It's at Upward Speech. And my website is uh, upwardspeechtherapy.com. That's the name. The name of my business is Upward Speech Therapy. Um, and I'm based out of Indiana, Carmel, Indiana. But yeah. And I have a Facebook page as well. Awesome. And again, for those of you listening or watching on YouTube, that will all be linked in the description. Thanks so much, Abby. And uh, this this was a blast. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Thank you for listening to the AAK podcast. To keep up with all things AAK, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at at AAK Cares. For any questions or comments about the podcast, you can reach out to me through my email, which is linked in the podcast description. We appreciate you tuning in. Until next time.